Welcome back to the podcast. This is now into week three, and I'm excited for us finally to get back to the very beginning of the Bible now that we've taken a look at a few of the things that Jesus had to say after coming and rising from the dead and pointing his followers on the road to Emmaus back to the Old Testament to read it with him in mind. And then we looked last time at specifically how even Paul thinks of the gospel having been preached beforehand to Abraham. And so what I want to do is is begin with Genesis 1-1 and to walk through some, what I perceive to be are some overlooked sections of Genesis in order for us to clear away some of the mud for us to know exactly what it is that we should be seeing when we look at Genesis 1. So here we go. As always, if you have a Bible and would like to follow along, um, you can turn it to the very first page in the Bible. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but I know that some of you, if you're like me, will listen to podcasts while you're driving in the car or while you're doing some kind of chores around the house or something like that and may not have a Bible in front of you. So as is necessary for the passages I'm talking about, I'll go ahead and read them um, so that you can just follow along as you as you're listening in. So in the very first verse of chapter one, page one of Genesis, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, it's, it's a lot of fun when I read these passages. My mind instantly goes to all of the things that I could say about it. And I think probably over time I will remember things that I forgot to mention and will kind of um, circle back and, and mention some of those things again. But I've titled this particular podcast Unformed and Uninhabited because that's actually um, a very one of a few options, but actually a really good one on how to rightly understand what the Hebrew is talking about when it mentions that the earth was without form and void. And um, I think it's really helpful, um, especially as you're trying to understand the book of Genesis, the way that the whole book unfolds and what God is attempting to explain about the world um, through the way he creates it and through the way Genesis 1 is actually written And so I think it's important to recognize that verse 1, the verse that simply says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think it's really helpful to recognize Genesis 1-1 as sort of a categorical overview of everything that we are about to read at least through the next two chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 and chapter 2. It just states it outright that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. And if you flip over to chapter 2 in Genesis, after you get all the way through chapter 1, and God rests on the seventh day in chapter 2, it says in verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And Genesis 2-4 is a really interesting verse. If you read it closely, it says the generations of the heavens and the earth... And then in the next phrase, it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth 
and the heavens. And so it lists heaven, then earth, and then it reverses the order and it says earth and then heaven. And what you find in Genesis 1 is a much bigger, broader scope of the whole world, the whole cosmos, all of creation, the whole universe. It's very heavenward boiling down to what is taking place on the earth. And when you look at Genesis 2, it is much more personal, much more intimate. God is is bending down and, and getting his hands dirty as he is specifically creating man. And um, what this is actually showing is a little more of an earthy perspective expanding back up toward heaven. And so as one of my, my favorite podcasts to listen to personally is, is the Bible Project podcast. And um, in one of their most famous videos, when referring to heaven and earth, they will refer to it as heaven is God's space and the earth is man's space. And that's actually a really good way to think about this. The word for heaven can simply be translated sky. Um, in Genesis 1.1, you notice that it says he created the heavens and the earth. So um, one one very simple way that I think is easy to confuse what is happening in Genesis 1 is to think that what it says is that God created heaven and he created earth. And you begin to look at it like heaven is this disembodied, you know, separate space where only God is, instead of recognizing that what Genesis is actually saying is that he created the heavens. And so in the heavens are going to be things like the birds. This is the, 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 the domain in which they live. And it's going to be the place where God will put the sun and the moon and the stars to separate the light from the darkness and to rule over the day and to rule over the night. And we'll get to why that's the case in just a minute. But the, the, the main point that I want to bring up this, this time in this particular podcast, as through every single podcast, is simply taking the Bible at what it says and imagining how it is best interpreted based upon what it says. And there are clues given to us along the way that I hope after repeated readings of Genesis on my own time, but but study as well as simply questions that I've had for years that I've been trying to wrestle through, um, how would this have been received by, um, by the ancient Israelite people? Um, they had other creation stories, and, and one of our future podcasts, I hope to share with you one of the biggest ones that I think they had, and show you some contrasts and clear differences between the way Genesis explains the creation of the world and the way popular culture at the time understood the creation of the world. And it's incredibly important for you and I to understand those distinctions um, because without that, we actually can misunderstand huge portions of why God gets so upset at his people for their idolatry. Um, We can reduce what they are actually doing to something far less significant than what's actually happening and can fall victim to the same mistakes today while remaining completely blind to the fact that we are doing exactly what Israel of old has done. But I'm getting ahead of myself at this point. What I wanted to look at specifically, again, verse 1, Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I think that that is largely a categorical statement. Now verse 2 is going to dip down a little bit more specifically and show us what that looks like when God actually gets his hands dirty. 
And verse 2 of Genesis 1 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, these words here that the ESV chooses to translate without form and void, I think the NIV translates that formless. Well, that would be the same way as translating it without form, and I think that that is a a good way to translate this, but the words themselves used in this way actually refer, and in, in, in a simpler form for you and I to understand this, would be to say something like wild and waste. Um, without form means that there, it's it's unformed. It's formless. It, it doesn't have any shape. It doesn't have any structure. And so there's this idea of of wild, and we this is kind of where we get our idea of of wilderness. It's it's a it's it's a it's a scope of place that doesn't have any structure. It doesn't have any form. It's sort of just out there. And so there there is a creation on on the earth on, in the heavens, but there is no structure. There is no order. And so you have this wild and waste kind of idea. And so as, as you and I think of wilderness, you know, that typically communicates to us kind of like a desert. Um, waste forms the same thing. It doesn't have anybody who lives there. It doesn't have a, a habitable place. Um, it, it is not a place where people are comfortable living. And so you, right off the bat, we get this image in the Bible of this vast desert barren wasteland and yet in verse 2 we are told that the that darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters and so it's this really really interesting symbolism between a wild and waste like a barren wilderness place vast sand, vast dryness, vast open space. But at the exact same time, it's referred to as a place of water. So the waters, these chaotic waters, as many of the psalmists will refer to these barren places, um, it's sort of a mixture of this barren wasteland of desert-like place, but also these chaotic waters in the darkness. And I mean, you don't have to read far through many, many places in the Old Testament. I mean, I'll mention a couple. Um, The Red Sea was one of them. The people um, walked through the Red Sea, and then those waters came crashing back down on the Egyptians and, and brought 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 about their destruction and then you get the book of jonah where jonah is fleeing and there's a terrible storm that that um, creeps up on him and on the sailors and these were scary places the the waters were these unknown deeps um, depths places where you did not know what was coming you didn't know what was there it was scary it was frightening but you recognize that in genesis 1 2 it says that the earth was without form and void now, void is simple enough. It's, it's, it's empty. It's, it's unformed, and it's uninhabited. So there is no form to the earth. It's this black, dark, barren, wasteland, water-like desert. And I know that sounds confusing at first, but we aren't given clarification as to what this actually means. 
so far in the story. All we know is that this is kind of this general description of what the earth was like. It's been created. God made it. But it is in this particular state right now that God is about to do something with. He's about to look at a creation that is unformed and uninhabited, and he is going to go about creating form and habitable places for his world to flourish exactly like he wants it. And if you know that, as you begin to read the entire chapter 1 of Genesis, it will illuminate tons of things about the way God chooses to create. It will set in motion exactly how it is that mankind is supposed to rule and image God in the way he rules the world and ultimately as he goes about trying to create things, trying to create um, form and trying to create things that are habitable. And it actually communicates so much about who God is in the way he goes about doing this. And so right away, it's really, really important. I, I Again, I, I love the words unformed and uninhabited. I think that that really captures the essence of what's going on. But then it, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so in the middle of this unformed and uninhabited creation, you have the Spirit of God who is hovering. The very life and breath of God is hovering. He is present where there is chaos and darkness, things that are unformed, things that are uninhabited, where there is wild and where there is waste. The Spirit of God hovers there. He's waiting. He's prepared. He has a plan and can and is prepared to do something masterful with both the unformed things and the uninhabited things. There is structure already in place, and when there, where the Spirit of God is, there is life. But in a formless and void, or in an unformed and uninhabited, or in a wild and waste creation, there doesn't seem to be much life. It's dark. It's black. It's unknown. It's scary. It's barren. It's a wasteland. But in those places, the Spirit of God is present. And this is an enormous theme that is used throughout the Bible. I, I can't, I mean, my mind is spinning a million miles a minute. And to, to save you from all the, the, the chaos of that, I'm not going to go into all the details yet, but we'll build on this, that the Spirit of God is present specifically in a place where it doesn't appear that any life can flourish. Well, this is exactly what we, you and I need to know, first and foremost, is that where the Spirit of God is, life has the potential to not only be formed, but also to be inhabited in, in a place that God creates for it. And so that, that, that's kind of a, of, a, of a lot to pull from the first couple of verses. I don't think it's everything that we can grab from them, but I would like to look through the rest of Genesis 1 and see just what we find when we, when we take those ideas, unformed and uninhabited, and the fact that God's Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, I think it will take us far in understanding just what Genesis 1 is trying to tell us. In verse 3 of Genesis 1, we read this. 
And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, one of the really neat things about Genesis 1 is the, the cadence that you can pick up as you read it. There are certain patterns, and there are certain order and a structure to the way each day is described. And this is not very hard to pick up just on a general reading, but God says, let there be something, and then that thing actually happens just at his command. He sees something about what he has made, labels it good. He separates something from something else, which is part of his putting order and structure into the world that he is making. And then we are told on just about every day that there was evening and then there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. And so here, right off the bat, we say, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Now, this is a theme that I'm going to pick up on later, and we'll have some fun with it when it comes time to looking at what is good and how does one define good and what does it mean for mankind to be good. And we don't have the answers to those questions yet. All we know is that God speaks about there being light. Light comes and God sees it and he labels it as good. But then we're told that God separates the light from the darkness. Now, remember the darkness. This is the place of barrenness. It's blackness. It's There's some scariness here and he separates the light from the darkness, which is really, really interesting because you and I know in our own experience that if it's dark in a room and you turn a light switch on, instantly the darkness goes away. And so there's a separation of light from dark even in that very act of flipping a switch. The darkness flees. This is what John picks up in John chapter 1 when referring to Jesus being the light and the darkness not being able to overcome that light because where there is actual light, the darkness goes somewhere else. And so even on day one of creation, God does in fact separate the light from the darkness, but that is because the two of those things cannot exist in the same place at the same time. Now, he calls the light good, but notice in Genesis 1, he never calls the darkness evil because it's not evil. This realm of chaos that exists is, is not evil. It's sort of this neutral place. Chaos and darkness and things that are scary, things that are unknown, things that don't have a structure or a form, things that are foreign to us. Many, many times in our own lives, we like to label those things as inherently bad simply because we don't have a context for them. But God doesn't say that. That's something that we invent. That's something that we impose. We don't like things that are foreign to us. They seem like they might be bad. But Genesis 1 doesn't say that. All it says is that God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And then he gives them names. He calls the light day, and the darkness he calls night, which is fascinating because that's what we call them. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So day one, very, very beginning, God creates light. Now, I really don't want to go into all of the rabbit trails that I possibly could go into when it comes time to describe Genesis 1. 
Um, I have read enough books. I have talked with enough pastors or theologians or Christians who love reading scripture and who have various interpretations of what Genesis 1 is actually talking about. And without getting into all of the details, the questions in the context I grew up in was that Genesis 1 primarily was written to talk about the fact that God created the world and evolution is not something that Christians should tolerate. And so Genesis 1 is read and is thought to be a counteract, uh, not counteract, um, a counterpoint to an evolutionary way of looking at the world. Um, now, when, when you say that, that leads you to a certain number of conclusions. And I, I don't necessarily have a problem with anybody who chooses to read Genesis 1 in that way, but I think it is um, very, very important for us to recognize that in the context that Genesis 1 was written in, the ideas of an earth coming through the form of Darwinian evolution were, was not on a lot of people's minds. And so it, you, you can have that view as you read Genesis 1, but I think what, you, what we want to do ultimately is allow the Bible to tell us what it wants us to know. And th that, that sounds really simple, but it surprises me um, in my own life, in, but in, in lots of other people's lives as well, just how easily that is ignored. Um, we bring a lot more to the Bible than many of us would be really comfortable admitting. We, we want the Bible to address the issues that we have in the context in which we live at the time period where we are. And I have heard many people, when choosing to read the Bible that way, defend that position under the assumption that, of course, God, who knows all things, knew that at some future point, issues like evolution or issues of, of political viewpoints or whatever would surface, and his word as being this timeless word that it is would be prepared to address those problems when they surfaced. Now, the, the, the trouble with making that your number one conclusion is that you, you don't allow the words themselves to address a context that they were written in or for the Bible to tell the story in the way it's telling the story and let it speak on its own two feet. Um, and you can make conclusions about how the Bible is relevant to your own time but you need to do the work of seeing how the Bible first communicated its truth to people in a different time. This is simply being, um, it's being, it's intellectual honesty, if that's the, the best way to describe it. There's probably a better word out there for it, but it's recognizing that the Bible was, is in fact written for us, but the Bible was not written to us. So I am not an ancient Israelite, living um, then. I, I'm a, an American and I live in the 21st century. And so when you come to Genesis 1 or any number of the rest of the chapters of the Bible, 
it's just really, really necessary that we allow the Bible to speak to us about what God wants us to know from his word. And again, I know that sounds really simplistic, but I, but I, again, am going to go back to Jesus's understanding and of, of what he said to us in Luke 24. And I always bring to my own understanding of the word, the fact that there were huge numbers of people who read the Bible, held it up as God's word, and so misunderstood the person of Jesus Christ that they crucified him and felt that they were doing God's work by doing so. So the simple fact that Jesus says that and that we watched that happen in the Gospels ought to, in the realm of, again, intellectual honesty and a little bit of humility, encourage us to say, are there things that we bring to the Bible in our own understanding that are some of the reasons that would lead us to have done something as atrocious as what was done to Jesus. And I'm not saying that if you try to make the Bible relevant to your own context that you're absolutely doomed from the beginning. What I want to do, though, is instead of jumping too quickly to answering all of the questions, I would actually like the Bible to raise its own questions and then to provide us with answers as we go. And so I I think based upon the length of this podcast, we'll probably have to do another one where we'll be dipping back in and and back and forth through through chapter one. But I did want to explain why I've titled this particular podcast Unformed and Uninhabited. And it's because if we get to verse six, here's what it says. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters um, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Again, you see a separation. You see a separation between the waters that are above the expanse, and this expanse is kind of like a canopy. It's sort of like a a large tent that you can almost see through. And believe it or not, in in an ancient Israelite mindset of the way the world was made and the way the world was structured, you had the land, you had the sea, you had mountains, which were these giant pillars that was believed to more or less hold up this giant canopy dome that was where the rain came from. And so it, it is, it's a very ancient type of view of the world we we've got a lot more scientific advancement now we realize that the sky is not some physical thing per se that is held up by mountains although people felt that to climb up mountains or what they perceived to be these pillars that were holding up this canopy when you climbed up to the top of a mountain you were as close to the heavens as you possibly could be while still being on the earth. And it's for that reason that the temples to the various gods were always built on the tops of mountains. The temple in Jerusalem was also built on top of a mountain. It was the the high point in the city in Israel. And so these ideas all shape the way this this is working itself out 
in Genesis 1, and yet we don't have to get into all those details. They'll work themselves out again as the story unfolds, but it's important to see that God is separating. He's got waters above, and he has waters below. He is forming the creation that currently is unformed. This is precisely what he's done into a darkness and deep and wasteland. He spoke light, and light came. He separated the light from the darkness. He saw that the light was good. Now he is separating the waters above from the waters below, and he's separating them from the waters that were above the expanse and below the expanse. He calls the expanse heaven or sky, and there was evening and morning the second day. Verse 9, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So now God is focused specifically with what is below. He dealt with what is above in the heavens, the, the light and the darkness. That's something that is up there. Um, all around us. Then he's dealing with waters separated from below and above, and he's now forming dry land and separating it from the seas. And this is the, the realm now where he is forming the earth. He is forming the dry land. And the word earth just means land. It's just the dry land. This is going to be the kind of place where man and woman and animals are going to live. And so what's really, really fascinating about the idea that the earth was formless and void, the earth was wild and waste, the earth was unformed and uninhabited, the rest of Genesis 1 is an explanation of God forming the earth and then inhabiting the portions that he's just formed with the types of things that he formed that portion of the earth or the heavens specifically for. Now, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but if you can visualize in your own mind a chart that has days one, two, three, going from top to bottom, day one, day two, day three, and then right beside day one, two, and three, you have days four, five, and six. If you were to label the first column on the left unformed. You could have day one, day two, day three directly below the word unformed. And then directly beside that column, you could write the word uninhabited and you could write day four, day five, day six. So day one is paired with day four. Day two is paired with day five and day three is paired with day six. And what you would find in the unformed column is you would find in day one, God's creating light and he separates the light from the darkness. In day four, God actually creates the sun, the moon, and the stars to be in the heavens to separate the day from the night. And he says it exactly like that on, in verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. 
And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. This is the first time that anything has been described in the book of Genesis as ruling over something. And what is it given to? It's given to the sun and the moon to rule over the day and over the night, to rule them. So the sun and the moon are put in place to guide the light that was created on day one to inhabit the space that is now light and darkness, day and night. God forms the light and the darkness. He calls the one day, the other he calls night. And now on day four, he inhabits that space with the very things that he needs to put in place there to properly rule that part of his creation and to rule it well. He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. I think we could conclude that that is probably referring to the sun and to the moon. They give light on both days, but they obviously the moon comes out at, at night and the sun is out during the day. But look at verse 20. God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, two types of creatures are described here. Creatures that live in the seas and creatures that live in the sky or the heavens. But you remember what we, told, what we saw on day two in creation, and that was that God separated the waters below from the waters above. He made a separation. He placed these waters above this canopy in the skies, right? And now he's inhabiting that space with birds. And he gives a slightly different example, not necessarily to rule, but he says that these birds and these these creatures that live in the seas that swarm will be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So he's got be fruitful and multiply, filling the space, right? Inhabiting the space that God formed on day two of creation. He formed the skies with the water above them and he formed the seas with the water below. Day three, he's going to separate land from seas. But at this point, day two, he has only dealt with water and he's placed water above and he's placed water below. And now on day five, he is inhabiting those portions of his creation with these creatures. We don't get a lot of detail. Um, there are, God created the great sea creatures. Um, they will come up 
uh, again, through the Psalms, through the book of Jonah, through various other places in the Bible, what exactly these refer to. You can read the book of Job and get some very, very mysterious creatures that God is very proud of, but are by no means safe for man. And so that, I'm sure, has played a large part into why the seas are very often scary and mysterious kinds of places. But what you're noticing now is this pattern. God forms something from this formless earth, and then he inhabits it. He fills that empty, once empty space, right? Formless and void, or without form and empty, or wild and waste, or unformed and uninhabited. Days one, day two, and day three is God forming the earth. And on day three, he separates the land from the seas. And actually, now that I remember I skipped over this, he says in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and tree fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Now, it's very interesting that God is creating all of these plants and trees bearing seed according to their kind and fruit trees. He is forming a land that will be properly habitable when he gets to day six and actually creates the creatures that are going to live on the land. And this is precisely what we read in verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Still day six. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's the end of chapter 1. And what have we found? We've found God forming a formless earth on days 1, 2, and 3. And then God going back over those same spaces, those same formless spaces that are now formed and properly inhabiting them with the creatures or the entities that are going to rule and fill those parts of the creation perfectly the way that God wanted them to be filled. 
And so what we find is that we find this, that the sun and the moon rule over the day and rule over the night. And the birds of the heavens fill the heavens with their presence and the fish fill and mul- they are fruitful and they multiply in their specific places. But then on day three, the land is separated from the waters. And on day three, the plants and the trees and the fruit are created so that when animals and man are eventually created, they have a perfect place in which to dwell. This is getting behind the creation and asking what does this tell us about the character and nature of the God behind the creation who is doing things with such intentionality and such order and such precision that it begins to help us understand who he is. Now, we're going to have to save the image of God for a separate podcast. But all that has gone on before you get to the creation of man is all we know to this point about what it means to be God. He creates with structure. He creates with intentionality. He creates with order. He's not intimidated by formlessness and uninhabitable spaces. His spirit dwells and hovers comfortably over darkness, over chaos, over formlessness, over emptiness, over wildness, over waste, over death. He simply resides calmly and perfectly waiting to create life. This is ultimately going to be at least to some extent what it means for us to know how to rule over the earth and be fruitful and multiply as those who are created like God. And I think one of the most helpful ways to recognize that is when you keep hearing these phrases that things were made according to their kinds, according to its kind, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, fish, each according to their kind, birds, each according to their kind, animals, creeping thing, beasts of the earth, each according to their kind, over and over and over and over. And then you come to the second half of day six. And I wonder if we couldn't almost substitute... (laughs) Let's create man according to our kind. We've got all these plants that naturally produce and and shoot off seeds that are according to their kinds and other animals that produce and give according to their kinds and birds according to their kinds and all of these things according to their kind. And now I'm going to make a creature that is according to my kind, that looks like me, that I can place over this earth, not just to rule the earth, the dry land, but to rule over everything. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. A huge question at this point is, what is it going to mean to have dominion? That's a great question. Genesis will address that. And it will address along the way a lot of the ways that it doesn't mean what it doesn't mean to have dominion. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, unformed and uninhabited, a God who creates with intentionality, a God who intends to place various entities or beings in places that he has just formed in order for them to inhabit those spaces and to rule them 
well. We'll talk more in future podcasts about just what that means. So that's all for now. Thanks for tuning in.